welcome to the Talk Narrow to Me podcast. In this episode, we release from the Carrick Institute Vault Professor Carrick's discussion on the utilization of the five-time sit-to-stand test, as well as the dynamic gate index and the activity-specific balance confidence scale in clinical practice. We hope you enjoy the show. Good day, people. There are a whole load of marvelous little diagnostic instruments that you can purchase, but when it comes right down to it, uh, there's some things you just need to be able to do at the bedside, and one of them is uh, clinical measurements, and these clinical measurements can be done without really any cost at all. So we're going to talk about the sit-to-stand performance <clears throat> Excuse me, in people that have uh, balance disorders. There was a recent uh, boy group of people from the University of Pittsburgh and up in Buffalo and uh, down at uh, Duke that were given a grant from uh, National Institutes of Health to study the reliability of basic bedside tests uh, specifically for uh, validation of people with balance disorders or postural disorders. So we know that people with balance disorders are characterized as having difficulty with transitional movements uh, such as the sit-to-stand movement. And that sit-to-stand movement is very, very important. You need to have good extensor mechanisms to get out of a chair. The higher the chair, the easier to get out. The lower the chair, a little bit more uh, difficult. But what do you do uh, when you're looking at people and saying, hey, uh, you've got a, a problem, a postural problem or a balance problem uh, based upon this test? Is the test valid? Can people take it to the bank? Uh, can they believe you? Can you believe the individual test? And what can you, you actually do? So there is uh, some certain tests that we utilize that have uh, been around for a lot of time. And uh, the group of Whitney and Risley and Furman uh, did some research a couple of years ago to look at all of the individual tests and to say, hey, this works, this doesn't work. One of the tests that they looked at is the five-time sit-to-stand test. And the five-time sit-to-stand test, they call it, you know, FTSST, uh, that five-time sit-to-stand test was compared with the activity-specific balance confidence scale. We call it the ABCs, right? The Activities Specific Balance Confidence uh, Scale. And <clears throat> they also compare this to the Dynamic Gait Index. So they took a whole load of people, and they took them without balance disorders, of course, and then they took a whole load of people with balance disorders and uh, recruited them. And then they asked them to stand from a chair that was 43 centimeters high, and they got them to do this five times as quickly as possible. Then they looked at the activity-specific balance confidence scale and the dynamic gait index, so the ABC and the DGI scores as well. And then the subjects with balance disorders were able to perform the five times sit to stand test a lot more slowly than subjects that didn't have balance disorders and that they also found that this five times sit to stand test was going to be correct and accurate in identifying about 65% of the subjects with uh, balance dysfunction. The ABC test and that's the activity specific balance balance confidence test is um, is a lot more accurate, believe it or not. It's able to identify 80%, whereas the dynamic gait index, the DGI, can identify about 78%. So uh, the five-time sit-to-stand test seemed to be able to 
work better with um, people that were under uh, the age of 60 years. In other words, it came up to about 81% uh, confidence. So that it was found that the five times sit to stand test uh, really give gives us a discriminative and concurrent uh, validity that make the test very useful in clinical decision making. Uh, but the ABC and the DGI are better at discriminating between subjects with and subjects without balanced disorders. So this is some pretty, pretty neat uh, stuff. We know that people have got to get out of chairs uh, all day long. That is to say, we need to be able to move from a sitting position to a standing uh, position in order to get things done. And when people have any functional impairment, their life changes, their autonomy changes, their world can actually uh, change. So that when an individual has decreased ability to get up from a sitting position, then they're going to have functional limitations, which are very, very significant. And this, of course, affects uh, society. We know from, boy, a long time ago uh, in, in the research that older people with bilateral vestibular loss, we, we know that they're going to move differently from a sitting position to a standing position than people without such a loss. Seems pretty simple, but that was work by KAYA, K-A-Y-A. It's pretty well landmark and people quote it all the time. Uh, also, there's a, a research um, researcher, uh, Gil Bodhi, uh, in his group that reported limitations in the ability of people that had peripheral vestibular disorders to also get up from a chair, to walk and return to the chair itself so that we know that vestibular lesions are associated with an inability to get out of a chair, but we also know that weak extensors are also associated with a problem getting out of a chair. And we know that individuals with vestibular types of lesions or cerebellar lesions develop weakness of their extensor muscles, not only the core muscles of the trunk, but those hip extensors that allow you to get out of a chair. So this is very important, especially for people that do manipulation and look at backs and necks or any of these uh, individual joints that have extensor muscles that really uh, control them. So that uh, all of you uh, doctors are, are really going to need a, a valid measure a feasible instrument, if you would, to look at the ability of people that have balanced disorders as well as people that don't have balanced disorders to move from a sitting position to a standing position and by extrapolation to be able to identify patients that may be at risk of balance problems because of this extensor uh, weakness. Now, there's been a whole load of descriptions of the sit-to-stand test in the, in the literature. People look at the force generating capacity of muscles. Uh, people uh, look at the sit to stand test as a measure of lower extremity uh, strength. It also has been used to assess the balance of an individual as well as the lower extremity strength. So the ability to stand from a chair is really, really crucial in giving a person autonomy. That independence that you see in the geriatric patients is such that when they can't get up from a chair, they lose that beautiful aspect of autonomy. And this has a great uh, social, uh, social problem for us, a societal problem. So that when we look at the sit to stand test, 
uh, you can look at it in, in a variety of conditions for people with arthropathies that have you know pain in their joints. They can't get up so very well. We know that people that have kidney disease, people that have had a stroke and developed different muscle weaknesses and, and just a general... Um, Oh, general geriatric uh, community as well as the younger community that sit to stand test has been used as an outcome measure of intervention such that when you do something to a person in regards to their treatment changes in their ability to get out of a chair are associated with their general health and it's something that you really should have a good good uh, evaluation of but the fact is is that everyone uses it but the validation of the test is really sort of up in the air. That is to say, uh, people use it, but no one really said, hey, does it give us anything significant? And it's so important in regards to best practices to be able to know if the tests that you're using are rich, if they're good uh, for, uh, for society. So it's important for us to be able to compare the tests that we use to other tests so that we're not going to waste our time, the patient's time, that we maximize the diagnostic integrity of these individual tests by comparing uh, tests like the five times sit to stand test with other uh, balanced tools. Now we know that when we look at the sit to stand movement, that we're going to have different strategies that are going to be involved, uh, such as angular and linear controls, and uh, we're going to have different uh, types of functional integrity or outcomes with individuals that have vestibulopathies or have cerebellar diseases or have a variety of brain-based uh, diseases. So we need to have a tool that's going to help us say, hey, is this person impaired? And if they are impaired, what's the probability that their impairment is due to a decline in one or another system? So when we look at the sit-to-stand test, we know that the sit-to-stand test can be used for a whole load of uh, different conditions. It can tell us about postural control. It can tell us about the probability of, of a risk of a fall. People that have poor extensor muscles or can't get out of a chair have an increased rate of falling. We can use it to measure the strength of the lower extremities. We also need to have a feedback. You need to know where your feet and your lower extremity is as well as your core muscles in order to get yourself out of a chair so that a sit to stand test gives us some very good indications of the integrity of the proprioceptive system it also gives us a an indication really of the measure of disability of an individual uh, person. So we look at standing, we look at postural control, we look at falls and, and a variety of different types of, uh, types of effect. We also realize that there's been a correlation uh, between uh, getting out of a chair uh, at least three times and in the speed of gait. So that when you have slowness getting out of a chair, we also find that your gait speed is also slow. So let's say you don't have a, an ability to, to do a, a comprehensive gait analysis. If people get up out of a chair like three times or five times and they're slower than other people, there's a high statistical relationship that their gait speed is also going to be slow. And we know that when gait speed is uh, slow, that uh, there's an increased risk of falling. We know that the postural sway, the strength, the visual contrast sensitivity, as well as lower extremity proprioception, uh, really 
affects your outcome in the sit-to-stand test. We know that when individuals have a very slow sit-to-stand time, that they have a very high uh, prediction of having further disabilities in their life. So it's an important test for us to do. So what are the methods that you're going to use in your clinical office? There's been a, a whole load of methodology that has been reported in the literature to to look at how a person can rise from a, from a chair. And different people have different types of ideas. For instance, uh, some people say, hey, uh, let's see how you stand up just one time uh, with your arms or without using your arms or without pressing on the arms of the chair or with pressing on the arms of the chair. And then some clinicians uh, like to have the person get up more than one time, see what, it, what it's like over a period uh, of time. Uh, some people say, well, let's do it five times. Some people say, let's do it 10 times. Some people say, let's do it 20 times. So realistically, the number of repetitions that are completed uh, during a specific time interval have been used by a variety of people. Sometimes people will say, just stand up as many times as you can and sit down, and we're going to see how many you do over 10 seconds, over 30 seconds, or over a minute. So there's a whole wide range of uh, testing procedures that have been reported in the literature. And with that uh, type of disparity in the literature, there, there's also the question to say, hey, what's normal? What's abnormal? Uh, what type of scoring system can you use? Is there any validity in this? Or is there uh, something that that we can use and, and uh, that is different than our own gut feeling or our own innate uh, thought of individual things. Also, how high should the chair be? How low should the chair be? So we've got all different methods of data collection. We've got all different types of chair heights, different types of foot positions. All of these things have been uh, reported in the literature. So we got chair heights from 40 centimeters, 43 centimeters, 45 centimeters, 46 uh, centimeters. And when you look at the literature, the different heights of the chairs obviously are going to make the comparison of these results a little uh, more difficult. The higher the chair, the easier it is to, to get out of it. Also, where are the feet? Where should you make the person's feet be when you're doing the sit-to-stand uh, maneuver? Because they're all over the place. We also know from a biomechanical uh, consequence that the peak whole body center of mass and peak angular velocities uh, seem to be lower when you have failed attempts at a sit-to-stand movement in a patient who has hit their head, for instance. There's a, a, a research uh, paper by Riley that suggested that failure to move from a sitting position to a standing position may be due to inadequate or poorly coordinated momentum generation in older older adults. There's another paper by uh, Schenkman that reported that older adults are going to increase their, their trunk flexion angular velocity to overcome mechanical difficulties with lower uh, chair heights. And what they were able to see is that when people have uh, a problem getting out of the chair, they're going to throw themselves forward to get out. So you see them rock forward and, and jump out of that chair. So if you see that, hey, uh, this has been reported in the literature and it's, it's of significance to you. When we look at the time to stand up, when an individual takes a longer time to get up from a sitting position, we know that these have been related to greater deficits 
in the activities of daily living that are central to the integrity of the person. We also know that slower sit-to-stand times are related to increased balance disorders in, in older adults. So uh, we know these types of things. We know that uh, if an individual has a slower time to rise from a chair that hey man they're just not going to be doing well in general things so it's a very good test to look at their uh, instrumental activities of daily living and to get a very good idea of what you can say or a statement uh, we know that the activity specific balance confidence scale is a really good tool to use and it's simply a self-administered questionnaire tool it gives a person uh, the Another tool uh, that we use to assess gait in older people with balance dysfunction is the dynamic gait index. And this was developed by a Shumway Cook and Woolacott, and everyone uses it. If you've got lower scores on the DGI, the dynamic gait in, uh, index, uh, this has been related to statistically to higher risk for falling in older uh, people. Well, the five-time sit-to-stand test is a pretty easy test to do. You get someone to sit down and stand up five times, so it's pretty easy to do. Everyone uses it, and uh, we really want to know if there is differences between people that have balance disorders and people that don't have balance disorders in order to to see if the if the test is is a valid test that we can use to test balance so that the ability to stand up and sit down five times is really really important and can we use it to discriminate between our patients that have balance and vestibular disorders and and people that don't have them also it's very important to be able to compare the outcomes of the dynamic gait index and and the ABC uh, scores with the five times sit to stand scores to see if there's any validity or intertest uh, relationships. So uh, when we look at the five times sit to stand test, and if we look at normal people, we're gonna say that the ability to sit down and stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down to stand up five times is really a measurement of a transitional uh, movement and that when we we look at that transitional movement, deficits can be caused by vestibulopathies and, and other types of problems. We know that uh, there may be age effects, for instance, on this performance, and we want to know how a young person is going to stand up in relationship to an older person, and we find that if a young person has the same sort of characteristics as an older person, then that probably is not so good for that person, and we need to make uh, an interaction. One of the first things you're going to do, of course, is to increase uh, strength of your extensor muscles, simple rehab types of act uh, of activities. So uh, important things to do. So how do you do these individual uh, studies. You need to have a chair and you need to be able to uh, see what is what is actually uh, going to happen by make sure that in your office the chair is at a, an individual uh, height. You need to realize that when you're looking at your patient population and you do a variety of testing, maybe you're doing a caloric or eye activity, they can get a little dizzy or a little twisted out of their normal activity just from going up and down in your high-low table. So 
oftentimes some physical performance testing such as the sit to stand is better to do on a different day uh, when somebody has you know dizziness or other types of effects or to do that sit to stand test uh, first when we look at uh, individual activities it's very very important to have all of your test similar your instructions must be similar so that if an assistant does this or you do this or an associate does this or another clinician in a different facility does this that we can get data that we can we can actually uh, compare so the verbal instructions must be exactly uh, the same and you should learn how to to do that uh, pretty well uh, you need to to have the people before you ask them to stand up and sit down five times can't even do it once or what is their individual uh, performance activity so the ideal way to do it now as people are standardizing it is to get the individual subjects to sit and cross their arms on their chest and sit with their back against the chair the chair uh, should be uh, ideally according to literature now at 43 centimeters of height and the depth of the chair is important too it should be 47.5 uh, centimeters very very important and they have to put their back against the the chair the instructions need to be standardized and here's what here's what's recommended this is the script I want you to stand up and sit down five times as quickly as you can when I say go right I want you to stand up and sit down five times as quickly as you can when I say go. And you can repeat that so that people understand what happens. And then your timing begins when you say go and when the person's butt touches the chair on the fifth repetition, it stops. So you need to instruct the, the individual patient to stand up fully. I just don't sort of get out of the chair, but stand up fully as they repeat the test and not to touch the back of the chair during uh, during each repetition so the patients are allowed to to put their feet comfortably under them during uh, during testing so it's it's going to be relaxed you put your feet whichever way uh, you want to to do it and then just you know just just sort of be be easy on yourself and uh, and be easy on the patient so say hey you know when you're sitting there just sit comfortably and then up and up and and away you um, away you go now when we look at the um, person getting up sometimes they're going to move their feet hey that's not a big deal when you when you test it the dynamic gait index is something you should be aware of it uses eight different aspects of gait performance You've got a total score of 24. The items include walking, walking at different speeds, walking with the head in pitch and yaw, which means a flexion or extension or left and right planes, walking and turning, walking around and over obstacles, and stair climbing. We already said that a slowness in the sit-to-stand test is associated with abnormalities in uh, in gait, so that uh, the dynamic gait index is a, is is pretty easy to perform, and like the a five times sit to stand test, it has got a good inter examiner uh, reliability. It's uh, greater than equal to 0.96, uh, which is uh, you know pretty darn good. Now the ABC is is really a self reporting measure, so you can get that 
that test and you can say to the people, hey, we want you to fill out this pen and paper test and see exactly what you're going to do. So that's pretty uh, neat stuff, right? You can get an instrument that has been validated and that validation is going to allow you to be able to make an assessment of people that it doesn't cost them a whole load of things. So you can get the activity specific balance confidence scale, the ABC uh, individual scale, and then just go uh, go through that type of uh, type of activity. Well, at the end, when you look at the individual um, activities with people with balance disorders, without balance disorders, we've got a, a variety of things that, that we can actually do. We know that the five times sit to stand test is able to assist in discriminating whether a subject has a balance disorder or it's just sort of a person without a balance disorder. But the ABC and the DGI are actually better in discriminating properties, so they're a little bit better. So when you've got a, uh, a choice in the instruments that you want to utilize in your, in your patient treatment, and you want to discriminate subjects with balance disorders from non-balance disorders, it really suggests that the ABC is going to be the test of choice with the strongest discriminative properties. So for subjects younger than 60, the ABC continues to be the optimal tool. And for subjects over the age of 60, the DGI may be the optimal tool. Now, this is only to discriminate between people that have balance disorders and people uh, that don't. So we're going to say that the ABC, that pen and paper test, is the best tool for discriminating whether a subject had a balanced disorder. It's also the easiest thing to do, especially if you've got groups of patients or people coming coming in. So all they have to do is complete a 16-item questionnaire. That takes a whole load less time than doing the physical uh, test. Really, really uh, super. The other thing is, is that once you have a person fill out the ABC, and they should do that on their yearly visits, if you see a decline in the outcomes of that 16-item test, that's going to set off an alarm for you. If you see a low score, you're going to be able to make an intervention. How long does it take for people to complete the ABC test? It only takes about five minutes. And uh, we know, for instance, uh, you all know about the Berg Balance Scale. That's the big scale. as a whole load of inventories. Well, the scores on the ABC are related to scores on the Berg balance uh, scale and, and associated with falls in older people. It's associated with understanding hip flexor torque and uh, general health, physical activity. Uh, the ABC is related to scores on the dizziness handicap inventory and, and uh, just does a whole load of, of things. So it's really, really uh, important. We know that there's different versions of the ABC for different countries. The British version, for instance, of the ABC gives you more information than the British version of the falls efficacy scale that, that would distinguish between younger and older uh, subjects uh, following. And the ABC is markedly better than the dynamic gait index and the five times sit to stand test. Uh, with with all people, so a nice little tool. So let's say the ABC is better at discriminating between people that have balance problems or don't. That's what you want to use, but that's that's the deal. But we need some more things. So the five times five times sit to stand test is really helpful in quantifying 
a transitional movement that's performed daily. It seems to be more useful with the younger subjects because their their scores are really different uh, in in young people that have balance problems and, and people that don't. So when we look at age, it's going to predict about 40, 48% of the variance in the five times sit-to-stand uh, test, whereas when you look at normal people, only 11% of the variance uh, is going to occur in, in those individual people that have balance disorders. So we're going to say that when you do poorly on that five times sit-to-stand test, you may have impaired motor strategies, you may have weakness, you may have dizziness, or have a variety of other sorts of things. So by looking at the ABC and discriminating between patients that do and don't have balanced problems, it gets you able to say, hey, if you don't do well on the five times sit to stand test, what are you showing the ABC? And you're going to say this person has got an inability to do well on the sit to stand test because they have a vestibular problem or they've got something uh, something different. When you look at younger people that have balance dysfunction, um, you're going to get a score of approximately, if you look at young people, scores of about 12.3 seconds uh, in the five-time sit-to-stand uh, test. So when we look at these sort of things, say, how long does it take you to go up? Well, hey, uh, you know, this isn't really cool. Some people are going to have increased scores of 15.3 seconds or 16 seconds, you know, in, in older in older people. So you've got these ranges of activities, you know, 12 seconds up to 16 seconds with individual uh, weakness. When you look at um, younger and, and older patients and you compare them, the ones that have balanced dysfunction, People that are dizzy will move slowly to avoid provoking a dizzy episode. So what happens is, is that there seems to be a threshold that when a person who's got balance problems or a person that is uh, dizzy moves faster, their symptoms going to increase so that younger people that have balance dysfunction are about eight seconds slower in accomplishing the, the five-time sit-to-stand test than, than, other, uh, than other people. So... Uh, some really interesting types of things that go on. If you start doing these things, you're going to get an idea in your office of who's doing things fast and who are doing things uh, things slow. It really is important. It seems that five times seems to be uh, the greatest uh, deal. Um, sometimes the height of the patient might have a, a little bit of a, a difference. For instance, there can be variance in the abilities to stand depending upon individual uh, height. So we want to make sure that the height of the chair is important. We can't do much for the height of the individual uh, person, but adjustable heights are important. I like to look at people that can't get out of the chair and to be able to adjust the height until I get a level that they can get out and record the level they can't. And then you're gonna have a nice uh, indicator of what their individual uh, functions uh, functions are. So what do we say? Well, we know that the five-time sit-to-stand test is capable of identifying people that have balance disorders. Uh, we know that its discriminative factors are enhanced when we have people younger than 60 years of age and that there's correlation with scores in both the ABC and the DGI. We know that the ABC has the best ability to discriminate between people with and people without balance disorders so that uh, when we look at the 
five times sit to stand test. You should also do the ABC or the DGI or both uh, to see what's what's going to happen. But of all of them, do the ABC, the simple little little individual test. The functional transitional movement, then you look at the five times sit to stand uh, test and, and away we go. So hopefully this is going to be helpful for you in order to do things that help people in be able to serve humankind markedly better. So it's like Christmas today because I am going to attach an activity-specific balance confidence scale for you to use as well as the instructions on how you can score it. So let's get this data together. It'd be interesting to collect it. And then uh, perhaps in six or seven months, you can send them all into us and we can see, uh, for instance, what are the scores in your patient population? What are their individual conditions? It could be very, very exciting. Okay, I'll see you next week. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on carriginstitute.com.